The heavens are still, no sound. Where then shall God be found? A follower of Confucius. No one saves us but ourselves. Work out your own salvation. Buddha. This ordered universe, which is the same for all, was not created by any one of the gods. Heraclitus. I'm a seeker of explanations for questions that can't be answered. I see patterns in history that seem to be coincidental and wonder if there are connections among people and events that have yet to be made. Here's the question of coincidence that has puzzled me longest. Confucius, the Buddha, and the first Greek philosophers all lived at precisely the same time. Precisely the 6th century BCE. Here's what they have in common. They were the first thinkers to make man, not the gods, the measure of all things. Confucius made it explicit that uh, it is not the omnipresent God who is responsible for everything. We have to be responsible for everything. Buddhism started out as this, as almost a reaction to the pantheistic, over-ritualized uh, colorfulness of Hinduism which makes no bones about, you know, the more gods, the merrier. Well, there's no god in Buddhism. When later Greek writers talk about them, what they contrast them with are people they call theologoi, people who give accounts in terms of gods. So why, at this exact moment in history, across the Asian continent, was there this giant leap? Were Greeks in touch with Indians who knew the Chinese? That's a reasonable question. But the problem in looking for an answer is something else these epoch-shattering thinkers have in common. The reliable written historical record really doesn't begin until after Confucius, Buddha, and the very first Greek philosopher Thales were dead. All of their writings and sayings were compiled afterwards by followers and disciples. So how do you pursue the facts about their lives and times, and any contact they might have had with other civilizations? Well, in the case of Thales, you dig for answers. Thales lived in Miletus, an Ionian Greek city on the Aegean coast of what is today Turkey. For almost a century, archaeologists, mostly German, have been digging up Miletus. Half a dozen sheds on the site are filled with shards, statues, and thousands upon thousands of tiny figurines dug out of the earth where what was once the richest and most important city in the Greek world stood. This is the raw material by which we can get information or learn about uh, the time of Thales. All you see on the desk is 7th century. Professor Folkmar von Greve of the Ruhr University in Bochum. He was born about the time when these figurines were made. So, so this is all f fresh material? That all fresh material, yeah. It comes from a sanctuary Aphrodite, of Aphrodite, which our excursion has been 
looking for for many years, but in 1990 we found it. And this is Aphrodite herself. Yes, I can see. Just hold it up for, for a second. She has. Um Long tresses, quite yeah. prominent breasts. Mm. It's called Daedalic. This Daedalic. style is Daedalic. She's a, it's actually quite a beautiful image, and the face uh-huh. w- is incredibly well-preserved. Somehow, over two-plus millennia, this palm-sized figurine, voluptuous, facial features quite distinct, has survived everything that has occurred here. Utter destruction in war earthquakes, new empires burying the archaic past under new buildings. The Aphrodite figurine is carved in a style that comes from the east, from Syria or possibly Babylon. When Thales lived, von Greva says, he must have seen the sanctuary where this Aphrodite was found. And for the professor, this is a key to the influences on Thales' thinking. He was in contact by just visiting a sanctuary with the Near Eastern world. And later, he used the the sources, the advantages of this Near Eastern world for his own uh, education and for his foreseeing the eclipse and this. I mean, he, he was, he depended largely on the Oriental sources. And this is this is new. I, we did not know this time at Miletus at all. When we started, the archaic Miletus was not known. Von Greve comes from an old school tradition where archaeologists learned ancient Greek and studied the texts of the first philosophers. He's been digging at Miletus for almost 50 years, trying to understand the context in which Thales and those who followed emerged. The background was not present before. The background of his life, the material background, the art. Of course, these things show us about economy. These, they are all made in Miletus. It's all local. We can't find his uh, footprints, and we will never find his house, and we will probably never find his grave. We can, we can reconstruct his environment, housing. We found houses of his time. It's not his, but he must have lived in something like that. Another thing missing from our picture of Thales is his actual work. None of his writings survives. He lives in legend and the testimony of later, better-known philosophers. So our story of philosophy is really the story that Aristotle and Plato say was the story of philosophy. They point to these people as their first ancestors and where the business got going. James Warren, reader in ancient philosophy at the University of Cambridge. People like Thales set about attempting to give a systematic account of gross natural processes, of the composition of things, of the origin of things, not in terms of some projection of an anthropomorphized divine agent. So Thales, for example, decides that the best way to explain the world is to say everything comes from water. So before that, people would have simply said Dionysus has control of this or Aphrodite has control of that. Well, that seems right. There are, they're being contrasted when later uh, Greek writers talk about them, what they contrast them with are people they call theologoi, people who 
give accounts in terms of gods. Thales' revolutionary idea was that everything comes from water. His fellow Milesian philosophers, Anaximander and Anaximenes, disagreed. The former thought everything comes from a unified substance, the Apeiron. The latter thought air was the source of all things. Soon, James Warren points out, the whole of Ionian Greece, from Miletus to Ephesus, was buzzing with intellectual competition, as thinkers like Heraclitus tried to find theories of everything that could explain the natural world and man's place in it. Looming over Miletus, across a narrow strait, is Samos. Pythagoras lived here at the same time as Thales and the other Milesian philosophers. He too looked for a theory of everything, not among the gods, but in rationalism. In his case, numbers, numeric ratios. These ratios were linked to a vibration that every object supposedly had. If you linked these vibrations in correct proportions, you got harmony. The Greek word harmonia just means a fitting together of elements. So you can talk of the fitting together of the elements of a chariot to make it a good chariot, or the fitting together of the elements, indeed, that make a musical instrument. And only if you've correctly fitted together the strings and the frame and so on, in fact, do you get a kind of harmony. Um, one of the slightly later Ionian thinkers, Heraclitus, makes a, a, a great deal out of the notion of harmony and uses things like a lyre, to explain how a good fitting together, a good harmony, can come out of, in fact, opposing forces. The fact that the strings are pulling the frame together, but the frame is pulling them apart. Provided those forces are balanced in the right way and well put together, that's why, when you strum the strings of the lyre, you'll get a pleasing harmony. Pythagoras and Thales were revolutionaries of rationalism who came out of a society that was deeply religious. That's what the archaeological evidence shows at the Temple of Aphrodite, according to Professor von Greve. They wrote on the offerings what, what it was for. On the tail of a dove, a man says, Thank you, Aphrodite, for my marriage. <laughs> He asked for a wife, and he got it. And then he gave this dove, quite a big dove, to Aphrodite. I mean, this exchange, you know, this sort of exchange. So they believed in uh, a goddess which could, was omnipotent. How did this revolution in thinking happen in an environment so imbued with faith? Von Greve says the story of his thousands of figurines offers a partial explanation. Every figure is a creation of its own. So the brains of even those people making these modest uh, votive offer must have been very bright. I mean, this is a, an atmosphere of high intellectuality. That's what I think. That's what these people, modest things, uh, show us. And he grew up in this, uh, I, I say, boiling <laughs> time. And... Uh, Right. And this is, we call this the orientalizing time. And Greek art was, was born in this time. Milesian merchants and manufacturers traded everywhere. 
We think that globalization is a new concept, but the 6th century BCE was the first age of globalization. From Miletus, trade routes went north to the Black Sea, south to Phoenicia, Egypt, and all the way around the North African coast. Traders went east, to the heart of the Persian Empire. The city was rich, and that too is part of the answer to why philosophy began there. Wealth buys you time. Alan Greaves, senior lecturer in archaeology at Liverpool University. Knowledge is power, but money is time. And they, they had the time to um, think and see things from an original point of view. Heraclitus said you cannot step twice into the same river. Everything flows. But on a windless day at the end of summer, the Erliger River in the foothills of the Anatolian Plateau was barely moving. As I stood with Greaves chucking stones into the sluggish water, it seemed possible that Heraclitus was wrong. You could step twice into this stream, and it would be the same water. We were standing by an Ottoman-era bridge not far from Chaltalar, a site where archaeologist Greaves has been digging. This road that we're on was uh, a main road throughout time. There were Ottoman periods, so from the second millennium AD, a Roman bridge here from the first millennium AD. Uh, there are Hellenistic lookout towers from the first millennium BC, and even a prehistoric site that we think was on this communication route, dating right back to even earlier times than that. The main routes were east-west. How far east did, did they ultimately go? How far east can one go? Um, you know, the, what I'm interested in is the possibility that some of what was happening in terms of intellectual developments accompanied traders along mm. the way. Is that mm. far-fetched? Not at all, because the, the traders aren't passive, they're people. You know, they have their religions, they have uh, their beliefs, and they bring them with them. You need to communicate, so there would be some shared, perhaps very basic communication, but as this process continued, more sophisticated communication uh, with the people, you didn't just pass through a place and move on. You, you know, it took months to travel these trade routes, and so you would spend considerable periods of time uh, in these communities and see what's going on around you and, and tell them about what's happened where you come from. The exchange of ideas went both ways. Traders from Ionian Greece also brought back ideas from the East, like mathematics and astronomy. Indeed, Thales was famous for using scientific knowledge picked up from the East to predict a bumper crop of olives well ahead of the harvest. The legend is he bought up all the olive presses in Miletus, and when the huge crop duly came in, he got rich renting out time on his machines. The Ionian Greek city-states did not exist in a political vacuum. Eastward into Asia was the land of empire, and great change was overwhelming it. By the middle of the 6th century, the Achaemenids, a Persian group led by Cyrus the Great, had overwhelmed all regional rivals, including Babylon, and established an empire that extended from the Mediterranean to the Indus Valley, the natural border with India. The Ionian cities were conquered, but not destroyed. Miletus continued to be a major trading center, but it was a vassal city. The Persian Empire was quite a extensive, but it was quite a light touch kind of empire. The Persians saw people 
as an asset. So if they had invaded an area and there were people there that they could use, they could be, for example, uh, architects or artists, or very interestingly, they could be soothsayers from the um, oracular temple at Didyma. We know that they carried them off and they took them east with them. So they took men of talent, say men, um, and basically invited them, but an invitation you couldn't refuse, to remove themselves hundreds of miles to the east, into the empire, mm. for their own purposes. It, it, was, it was an invitation. They were, they were goods. They were chattels. They had sacked the temples and taken their gold. And so, you know, they saw these people as just property that they could take. And, and, but they had a skill, so they were valuable for that. As much as the trading routes, the Persian Empire became a medium for transmission of ideas. They would take these priests who were obviously of an upper caste in their own environment and take them if they had skills that they thought were useful, like uh, divination, and hold them hostage in court, and also likewise doctors and diplomats, political leaders. We know that the uh, political leaders of the Greek East here in, in Western Turkey were taken hostage and kept in the palace. And so that's how they were in constant contact with the movers and shakers within the societies that they had conquered and were engaging with. It's not impossible to think that someone from the far east of the empire in what is today India, is a, perhaps a doctor, sitting with a doctor from the coast of Asia Minor. Is it, it's not impossible to imagine that. Well, absolutely not. It's entirely conceivable. Ionian Greeks were well known in India during the Buddha's lifetime. Romala Thapar, Emeritus Professor of History at Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. The word Yavana in Sanskrit is thought to be derived from Ionia, and then it came to be used for anybody from the West. The Yavana, or Yaunas, were people living west of the Indus River. The Buddha, for instance, talks about how uh, we have many castes here in India, but amongst the Yonas there are only two castes, the master and the slave. In the West, there has been an argument for several decades about when Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, actually lived. But recent archaeological finds near his birthplace in Nepal confirm the long-held Indian assertion that he was born around 550 BCE, if he knew the Greeks well enough to know about their reliance on slavery, what else might he have learned about Ionian society? And how might he have learned it? The written historical record doesn't really begin until two centuries later, at the time of Alexander the Great's campaign on the Indus, says Professor Tapar. The end result of Alexander's campaign was the opening up of trade routes. And if there's an exchange of goods, there's bound to be an exchange of ideas. You know, how do your people live? What do they believe in? 
The absence of a written record before Alexander's time doesn't mean there was no contact between Greeks and Indians. On the contrary, trading links between India and Greece went back centuries. As with Ionian Greece, it's the archaeological record more than the written record which provides the key to India's past. I sat in the quiet courtyard of Delhi's Nehru Library with archaeologist Nayan Jot Lahiri, professor of history at Delhi University, for a private tutorial. If you look at the Gangetic Plains, where the Buddha spent a great deal of time wandering, uh, it was full of these cities which were using raw materials that were simply not available in and around those areas. And, you know, you have, for example, lapis lazuli beads, which could only have come from the Afghanistan region. And similarly, if you look at Buddhist literature, uh, you know, you have the Baviru Jatak, which hints at links with Babylonia. And if you look at the archaeological evidence in, you know, West Asia, there is cedar wood in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. There is teak in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar at Ur. Cedar and teak could only have found their way to Mesopotamian cities like Babylon and Ur from India. In those cities, Indian traders would have encountered Ionian Greek traders. Another parallel between Ionian Greece and northern India at this moment was the rise of cities, according to Professor Lahiri. The time of the Buddha is the time of very uh, well-articulated urban growth in you know, uh, the Gangetic Plains. And those cities must have been very much a part of uh, you know, the life of the Buddha. He drew a lot of patronage from them. Buddha taught in the cities of ancient Magadha, the great kingdom of northern India at that time. Here's what we know for certain about him. He lived in a time of upheaval, rapid urbanization, sudden new wealth led to political change. Born a prince of a warrior clan, Siddhartha Gautama, or Shakyamuni, renounced his place in life, became a wandering beggar, practiced intense self-mortification in the hope of finding a way out of the world's sorrows. Then he found enlightenment and became Buddha, which means enlightened one. Enlightenment meant, among other things, rejecting the Brahmanical traditions of Hinduism. Buddhism started out as this, as almost a reaction to the pantheistic, over-ritualized uh, colorfulness of Hinduism, which makes no bones about, you know, the more gods, the merrier. Mishi Saran, author of Chasing the Monk's Shadow, a journey in the footsteps of Xuanzang. Sakyamuni, the Buddha, wanted to move away from all that. There's no God in Buddhism. There's no, in early Buddhism, there was no representation of the Buddha. He was just represented with a pair of sandals and the, the, the chakra, the wheel of, of truth that he turned. The teaching, says Saran, was very simple and very effective. It offers this incredibly elegant solution to the most fundamental uh, problem of, of human life, which is suffering of all kinds, physical, mental, emotional. And it sort of holds out this promise of how to end uh, a person's suffering during their lifetime. And how could this not appeal to anybody and everybody? Buddha took to the roads of Magadha to spread the word.
Bodhgaya is the place where Buddha became enlightened. Today it is a place of pilgrimage for the world's more than half a billion Buddhists, and on the outskirts of the town is the Root Institute, set up by Western adherents of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. The Root Institute runs a clinic for the local community. Recordings of Tibetan monks chanting fill the waiting area. There is also a study center on the Institute's grounds where I found myself speculating about intellectual connections between ancient Greece and India with Sarah, a Buddhist nun, and Andy Melnick, who runs the Institute's orphanage in Bodhgaya. When I first heard what you were doing about uh, this correlation between the Buddha and Confucius and the Greek philosophers, the early Greek philosophers, the first thing that came to my mind, I mean, as I say, I don't know much about Confucius or the early Greeks, but I'm, I've been a Buddhist for many years. The first thing that came to mind is that within Buddhism we have, and especially within the Tibetan tradition, a very well-established debate tradition, which is based upon the syllogism and how one syllogism falls into another. And I was told that it's actually very similar to the Greeks. And I remember, in my mind, I remember thinking, well, that's interesting, but why should it be? I don't know how early the Greek philosophers started doing that type of debating. As in Greece at this same historical moment, competition between new philosophical ideas was a hallmark of the Buddha's time, according to Melnick's colleague, Sarah. You know, around that time when the Buddha was teaching, there were many philosophers teaching. And the way of teaching was not by, you know, writing something, it was not by as necessarily giving these formal teachings, but they would go from village to village, they would go from place to place. India was a collection of kingdoms, they would go from place to place. And people would approach and they would ask them a question and they would give a teaching. So you have this famous example of the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha actually, this was given in Kasarya, which is um, up from here, where the Buddha came to the place where the Kalamas lived. And um, the people came to him and they said, you know, we have so many philosophers coming to talk to us. You know, they come to the village, they, they explain this, it all sounds very reasonable, very rational and everything like this. And then they go away and somebody else comes and what they say sounds very reasonable. So how do we know what to believe? I mean, how, where do we, how do we work this out? And the Buddha uh, gave these instructions in the Kalama Sutta. Don't believe something simply because some holy person says, simply because it's in a holy book, simply because your peers believe it, or your country believes it, or your, your, your parents believed it, or it's what everybody's saying to you. But the need to check and investigate, to keep everything as an, as an open question. The Buddha was deeply engaged in the politics of his time because political patronage helped spread his ideas. It was a competitive intellectual environment. New sects with new teachers erupted out of a society rapidly changing its economy and political structure. Buddha and his pupils debated rivals and gave talks in the newly established palaces, according to Professor Nayanjot Lahiri. The patronage for many of these thinkers who are questioning the uh, social and religious mores of the 6th century BC and taking a very strong, rational, thought-out uh, stand against the prevalent Brahmanical faith, as it were. They're supported by 
these new classes. So it is these moneyed groups that are, you know, it, it's traders, it's guilds. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, the political patrons that they have, which is why they have uh, so much power. It's somewhat ironic, but I mean, that's the way, uh, you know, life is, that on the one hand, Buddhism is about you know, it's otherworldly and it is about the only certainty in life being a sorrow. But on the other hand, there are people and groups who are this worldly and, uh, you know, making a lot of money in the new economic ethos of uh, those times that, uh, you know, they're providing patronage to uh, the Buddha and he's quite easy about it. Wandering, otherworldly, impoverished sages teaching and seeking patronage among wealthy folk whose money does not inoculate them against life's sorrows. Sounds familiar. The picture you paint is its almost identical to people in the 60s and 70s from the West who grew up with a certain amount of comfort and still found themselves unhappy and found their way to India and Nepal and ended up becoming Buddhists. I think that's a wonderful, you know, analogy. I, I really hadn't thought of that. But it, it, it really is like that. The Buddha himself came from a very affluent background and, uh, you know, then has all kinds of queries and questions and unhappiness about what he was doing in that kind of background and then searches himself out through these long journeys across part of North India. And it's, it's a sort of, it's an existence on the move, so to say. And uh, I can imagine, you know, you were talking about traders. One can imagine, you know, the Buddha and his followers passing caravans and so on and so forth. And that may be one of the reasons why there was so much support from the trading community. Because, you know, you feel a certain affinity with somebody who shares your landscape. We know there was exchange of goods and ideas between Ionian Greece and northern India at the time of the first philosophers and Buddha. Might the caravans of this first stage of globalization have taken a revolutionary idea like man, not the gods, being responsible for himself further over the mountains or across desert and steppe to China? Author Mishi Saran, who has walked the route from China to India in the footsteps of a 7th century AD Chinese Buddhist monk, sees no reason why similar journeys might not have been taking place a thousand years earlier. The mode of transport um, would have been the same, either by foot or on the backs of pack animals. Um, the geography hadn't changed, uh, same mountains, same rivers. I mean, rivers do shift, uh, but essentially it's, it's roughly the same geography. So I'm guessing between uh, those two periods, there wouldn't have been too much of a difference. Um, the big difference, of course, occurred after uh, the modernization of modes of transport and motorization and the industrial revolution, etc. once you have cars and macadam roads, etc., etc. Written records of Ionian Greece and northern India during the time of Buddha are fragmentary at best. That's not the case in China. Precise historical dating is possible for Confucius, and there are good records to indicate the social upheaval into which he was born. 
Confucius was born, according to our calendar, September 28, 551 BC. Professor Du Weiming, director of the Institute for Advanced Humanistic Studies at Peking University. A very rich, integrated, comprehensive political system based upon elaborate rituals was disintegrating. So the idea is that uh, all under heaven, the way is being lost. And Confucius was seriously concerned about that. For 500 years, the area of China where Confucius lived, the Kingdom of Lu, had been governed by principles laid down by the Duke of Zhou and followed by his descendants. Now, as in northern India at this same historical moment, the old order was being challenged, vassal states were rebelling, the way of governance was being lost. His great mission was to restore that order. Instead of creating something totally new, he said, uh, I was a transmitter rather than simply a maker. I wanted to trans transmit the way of the Duke of Zhou and the sage kings. The sage kings supposedly ordered the world according to a kind of uh, moral charisma and with very little re reliance upon law and punishment, basically through ritual and moral influence. Confucius' writing and collected sayings in books like The Analects are peppered with this idea that laws are not necessary when rulers act in a correct way. Lord Chi asked Confucius, I'm worried about thieves in the state. How do I bring them under control? Confucius replied, If your highness were not greedy, people would not steal. Analects. How is this moral behavior in the ruler cultivated? The great duke's system of governance, according to Professor Du, was based on educating the heirs apparent of the state in not just warlike arts of charioteering and archery, but the practice of rituals and the study of music, the physical manifestation of harmony. Harmony is never understood as sameness. So this is very important. Harmony without sameness. So you don't sacrifice creativity, transformative power with a kind of outmoded idea of stability. Because if the stability is stale, it will bring major chaos in the future. Within Confucian writings, there is constant reference to heaven, Tian, like in Tiananmen, which means gate of heavenly peace. To a Westerner, mention of heaven immediately implies God and religion. That is not the case with Confucianism, according to Shandong University professor Fu Yuda. The core of Confucianism is ethical. Confucianism, the five virtues, you know, Ren, Yi, Li, Zhi, Xin, humanity, righteousness, uh, wisdom, propriety, and the faithfulness, all this values are about how to deal with human relation. The five virtues, humanity, righteousness, wisdom, propriety, and faithfulness, are summarized in the Analects in the concept of reciprocity, what we in the West call the golden rule. Sei Kung asked, saying, is there one word which may serve as a rule of practice for all one's life? The master said, Is not reciprocity such a word? What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others.
all proper conduct is said to be done under heaven. The ruler holds the mandate of heaven. But Professor Fu emphasizes the mandate of heaven is not the same as the European concept of a monarch being God's anointed. In Confucianism, the heaven is so high or so far away from the people, so the Chinese people think the first priority is to honor their parents. This intellectual concept of heaven doesn't mean that religion had no place in China in Confucius' time, according to Peking University's Professor Du. One thing we know for sure, that China in the 6th century um, was a very religious country and the people very religious people in our modern sense of the term, uh, because uh, people all believe in gods and spirits. There's a respect, a vision of the transcendent. And in traditional China, um, at least five areas are important for, for reverence. Heaven, earth, um, the nation, or the king, nation, family, and teacher. So these are five major centers of uh, values or reverence. Within this faith-driven context, Du says Confucian thought represents dramatic change. I think the idea of uh, a person or individual uh, should take care of his or her, not only fate, ability, is very revolutionary. So Confucius made it explicit that uh, it is not the omnipresent, omnipotent God who is responsible for everything. We have to be responsible for it. But the Confucian choice is to reflect upon the human. The most important thing for Confucius is what is the meaning of being human? Why are we here? And what ought we do? Uh, what can we hope? Now, in that mode of thinking, your question that uh, for the first time, at least in Chinese history, it's no longer the law on high or heaven out there that determines what we do. We have to determine what we do. Confucius' life was bound up in the politics of his time. His father, a warrior, died when he was three. He grew up in proximity to power, but with no money or connections. He spent his professional life seeking patronage, working for local princes. He became disillusioned with some, others became disillusioned with him. All of his experience shaped his teachings, whose overriding theme is right conduct. Politics, from his point of view, is rectification rectification, which is a turn to correct what is incorrect. In other words, politics is intertwined with and maybe totally inseparable from uh, the idea of moral self-cultivation. I traveled from west to east across Asia, knowing I would find no proof that the simultaneous great leaps forward in human thought across the continent that took place in the sixth century were linked. Yet I did find coincidence piled on top of coincidence, or similarity piled on similarity. In the 6th century BCE, in Ionian Greece, 
India and China, it was a time of economic and political upheaval. Old structures disappeared, new wealth, new kingdoms arose. Harmony was prized in all three civilizations. Yet in these deeply religious societies, the existing gods couldn't deliver that harmony. Indian historian Romola Tapar has this explanation for what happened. In every society where you have given conditions, people who question those conditions would tend to question them in similar ways. So in societies that are changing and where there is emerging urbanization, where there have been religions of sacrifice, um, there would be people who would question those religions. So I think there's an element of parallelism that can be expected. That is simply a kind of historical situation. Professor Tapar is an historical determinist, and in my work as a journalist, I've covered enough civil wars to be a bit of a determinist myself. But in this particular case, I still can't help but think that there's something more. Author and historian Mishi Saran does as well. The geographical and physical remnants of Buddhism, in a sense, are, are less important than the stories and the stories that people tell each other, the stories of the life of the Buddha, the songs, the, all that had never died. I was astonished on my travels in Xinjiang to come across this story uh, among the Uyghur people in Western China of Laila and Majnun, which is this famous story. I thought it was an Indian story about these two star-crossed lovers and Laila is dying for love, Majnoon, etc., etc. And here was the story in Xinjiang. So if you talk about the evidence of people going back and forth, you can talk about lapis lazuli and bits of bone or, or trees or wood or cloth. But I think even more binding is uh, the stories people tell each other and how the stories travel and language, how bits of the language meld across borders. Stories link all these revolutionary thought systems. Stories told around caravan campfires, ideas exchanged at royal courts around Asia. There is one other coincidence that links them. These faiths without God, founded during periods of social chaos that no deity could explain or resolve, ultimately became religions. Next week, I will try to find out why.